This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store with the new Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code TREK3. You're listening to Trek FM. these books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones and with me as always is my co-host Matthew Rushing. Now Matthew, uh, the screen right now it says that you are a Guinness guzzler. Now St. Patrick's Day was last weekend. What's going on? Last weekend? Still St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? I mean, maybe I just don't remember. What day is this, Chris? You're just really celebrating. You're you're still hungover from our Ready Room discussion of Fairhaven and Spirit Folk, right? That's probably it. Um, that was a wild and crazy night. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, you know, when, when uh, Neelix the Leprechaun shows up, uh, you know you're in for a wild and crazy night. So... What have you been doing uh, uh, since then, Matthew? Well, nothing too much, uh, really, Chris. Honestly, just uh, finishing up Tony's book, reading that, writing the review, and uh, really enjoying uh, doing that. Uh, also, just uh, finishing up some other books in my life, uh, catching up on some comics. Had a lot of comics come out this week that I read. So, yeah, it's been a pretty busy week and just uh, kicking back and enjoying things. How about you? Uh, same here. Just very, very busy as always. Um, it's kind of exciting here in Tokyo this week. The, the weather's really warming up and the first cherry blossoms have started to bloom and we're probably not even a week away from full bloom now it looks like. So it's going to be that image that everyone has of Japan of the, the pink cherry blossoms framing the landscape, uh, which is the it is the view, I think, that people have of Japan internationally. The reality is that lasts less than two weeks every year. So <laughs> it's a very special time for us here. So I'm excited about that. Well, that's good. And I'm expecting to see Kirk Bear on some missions in the Cherry Blossoms. He will be. So. He will definitely be going on some missions. He'll be going on Ohanami with us as we sit under the trees to... Uh, drink some beer and sake and have some food and chat, Excellent. which is a tradition. So looking forward to that. Well, Matthew, why don't we jump into our news this week? We don't have a lot of news. And then Tony Daniel will be joining us in the feature to talk about his new book, Devil's Bargain. But uh, it looks like next week is going to be a big week for fans of Star Trek books as two books are going to be dropping. Yeah, I'm really excited. On Monday, we're going to get Stuff of Dreams, James Swallow. This is an ebook uh, only, and so uh, hopefully all the listeners do have their ebook 
friendly devices ready, uh, their pads, their nooks, their Kindles, their computers, whatever it is, you're going to want to read this one um, about Picard uh, and the Nexus. This actually takes place too after uh, David Mack's latest trilogy. And so I'm very excited to be reading this. In fact, really excited as well that James is going to be joining us next month to talk about this book. And so um, that's going to be a lot of fun. So definitely pick this up on Monday get it read so we can talk to, to James next month and you'll be all set. That's great. Uh, I'm glad he's going to be back with us. And, you know, you talked about your ebook friendly devices. I've been listening to, I listen to a lot of tech podcasts and they've really been talking a lot these days about Google Glass. I was just envisioning having uh, an e-reader built into Google Glass. So as you walk around all day, every day, right up there, Right above your right eye would be James's ebook just flowing right down. And you could actually have the stuff of dreams as you walk around town. That or just a massive headache from trying <laughs> Probably, to right? focus on that. You know, it reminds <laughs> me of uh, in Deep Space Nine when they get on the Jem'Hadar ship and it only has that tiny little view screen and it gives Cisco right. a headache. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, that, that Google Glass, it does remind me of those little eyepieces that the Jim Hadar use when they're on their ships. Well, maybe the Google Glass motto is victory is life. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Well, uh, the next thing that'll come out next week is on Tuesday. It's The Weight of Worlds by Greg Cox. Um, definitely excited to be reading this. I love the cover art alone uh, for this book. And uh, we'll be talking to Greg as well in April about this book. So it's going to be an exciting month, uh, not only for Star Trek books, but also um, for literary treks and, and getting to dive in with these authors about their latest works and this will be Greg's first time on the show, so I'm really excited to be able to talk to him because uh, he also wrote the Khan Noonien Singh books as well, um, very popular, and so that'll be great to get to talk to him. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to Greg because uh, I've over the years I've read many, many of Greg Cox's Star Trek books, and that's going to be wonderful. It'll be my first time to talk to him as well. Well, and that's all we have actually for book news. And in, in comic news, uh, some interesting things came out. Uh, the June solicitations. One was Ongoing 22. What did you think of this, Chris? Because it's got Spock on the cover. I'm not sure what to think yet, other than at least I know Spock is not going to die in Star Trek Into Darkness, as this will be the second comic to come after the movie drops. And we know that from 21, we're going to be picking up the story where the movie leaves off and moving forward from there. Um, I don't know. Do you have some speculation on this comic? Well, I just thought it was interesting that they are having Spock on the cover. So I take it nothing happens to Spock irreparably right. in the film. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a little surprised that they would kind of... Uh, you know, give that away here uh, for all of us comic fans. But I'll just be interested. I mean, if Spock's on the cover, uh, maybe he's going to really be dealing with some things because uh, as we see in The Countdown in Darkness, Spock is is still reeling from this uh, issue of having his planet destroyed and yeah. not necessarily doing a great job of it. So I, 
I think this character has a lot of growth. Yeah. Well, let's not forget. I mean, this cover, as we've discussed before, this could be in memoriam of Spock. You know, the the 21 could have been in memoriam of the crew as a whole. And maybe each issue after this is going to feature a different character on the cover. And we're going to be remembering their lives because they all die at the end of Into Darkness. Well, that could happen. I mean, uh, you know, in Star Trek to the original, Spock was the only one who died. So what if now Spock is the only one who lives? Oh, that would be quite a twist. I was thinking, what if everyone on the ship dies except Keenzer, and then <laughs> Keenzer has to fly the ship around by himself for all eternity? That just sounds horrible. It sounds like that Greek <laughs> god, Siphius, who has to push the stone up, you know, the hill uh-huh. and until it just comes crashing down on him until he gets to the very bottom again and then he keeps doing it. This sounds horrible. Poor Keenzer. I really feel for that guy. <laughs> it does. It sounds horrible for him. It does indeed. So, nah, but in, in all seriousness, um, yeah, I think in a minute we're going to talk about Countdown to Darkness number three. And Spock is very much not the Spock that we're familiar with from the Prime Universe anymore in the Abrams verse. And the fact that he's on the cover of 22 means to me that they, the Abrams verse in general seems to be settling in on an exploration of Spock. And they're using Spock as the character through which they uh, explore emotional turmoil and, uh, you know, coming to terms uh, with traumatic events in life and, and and charting the course, you know, finding your identity and figuring out who you are. They seem to be using Spock for that a lot more in the Abrams verse than what we're used to. Definitely. Well, the next thing that we've got is a Star Trek Legion of Superheroes crossover. This will be the uh, trade paperback edition that'll collect all of these. And uh, it's going to be the crew of the Enterprise And the Legion of Superheroes come face-to-face to to deal with a changed history, which seems interesting because, you know, they're from the 31st century, and, you know, the Enterprise is only from the 23rd century. So this is a really interesting uh, crossover. I haven't actually read any of these, so it would be something I might pick up to take a look at to see what one of these type of crossovers is actually like. Yeah, I, I read the first two of these, but not the rest. Uh, I was mainly just, like you said, curious to see what the crossover was like. I'm, I, I typically don't get into these type of crossovers that much myself. Uh, they, they just seem kind of odd, but at the same time, it can be fun to combine two very different franchises in that way. So, uh, you know, if you are a fan of Legion of Superheroes and Star Trek, you might really love this kind of crossover. And uh, if you're like me, not really into Legion of Superheroes, but you're just curious, um, I did really enjoy the artwork in these. And uh, you could check that out and, and see what you think about it. And, you know, getting it collected in the trade paperback omnibus is a great way to just take it all in. This book will actually be coming out. Uh, it's supposed to be on the 12th. Uh, actually, both of these are supposed to drop on the 12th of June. And uh, the trade paperback of course will be 1999 and it's 156 pages so this is a good sized book uh so i'm definitely going to be looking into this because 
I'm quite interested to see what happens. So, Matthew, to wrap up our news segment today, let's dig into the latest issue of Countdown to Darkness. This is Countdown to Darkness number three. And spoiler alert for everyone, if you haven't read it yet, we are going to talk about the details of the comic. So you can, if you're in the Enhanced podcast, you can go ahead and skip ahead to the next chapter, listen to our interview with Tony if you'd like, or, you know, you can pause, grab the digital edition, uh, take a few minutes and read it and uh, pop back in and see if you share our thoughts. So Matthew, we're picking up, uh, you know, Spock has run off. We don't know where Spock is going at the end of the last comic and now we're picking up the story so what were your thoughts as you as you dug in here to the third part of this four-part story well this one uh, i thought was interesting because it begins to answer some of the questions that we've been having about the story and really uh starting on the road to wrap it up until i got to the end and then a whole bunch of new questions came into my mind um Exactly. Um, And I'm thinking to myself, well, they only have one more comic to wrap this up. So uh, they seem to have plotted this out really well, I think, though, because each one just leaves me more and more interested in the next one and seeing how they're going to build towards the film. And with the revelation that Alex Marcus is going to be in the film, that's Peter Weller's character. Uh, it just makes it all the more interesting. And uh, I'm wondering if he's actually going to come into play at the end of this comic or not. But I liked the beginning of this story because you begin with uh, Sulu and Hendorf here uh, tied up. They've obviously been, uh, it looks like they've been mistreated. And uh, Sulu does some fancy magic with his boots and pulls out a knife, which I thought was pretty awesome. <laughs> he carries a knife boot. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, I, I figured he got that from Q Branch. It reminded me personally of one of my favorite series from Garrison Keillor, uh, Guy Noir, Private Eye, where they're always carrying guns everywhere. They've got boot guns, ear guns, sock guns. There's always something. So for me here, Sulu's probably got knives just stuck all over himself. Yeah, you never know where he's got one hidden. And uh, so it's pretty dangerous for him to undress. He has to have, I think, a special (laughs) way to get his shirt off, you know, and, you know, take off the boots without cutting himself. So he's talented, though. But so, yeah, they they yeah, they escape. Uh, You know, they had been captured in in the previous comic. And and then we jump into, you know, more discussion between Kirk and April and. At this point, I think we talked about this last time. At this point, I feel Kirk is still very much a supporter of the Prime Directive. You know, he doesn't believe in this interference that April has uh, started to undertake here uh, on this planet. And interestingly to me in this comic, between Kirk and Spock person who seems to be willing to toss aside the prime directive is not Kirk, which you would normally think, but is Spock. I thought that was really interesting because you deal with a little bit later on Uhura being very worried about Spock and his his mental state of not really dealing with Vulcan being destroyed. 
and making him a lot more risky in a lot of the moves that he's taking. And as she says, just kind of using the uh, using whatever logic he can to cover it up. And what's interesting is that Kirk seems to be more like Spock that I think of in this comic right now. And Spock seems to be more like the Kirk that I would think of normally. And I'm really interested to see how this is going to play out to get to that point in the film where Pike is having to have a conversation with Kirk. And obviously, you know, Kirk gets the Enterprise taken away from him. We know that in the film. So how in the world does that happen? I'm really interested to find out because this seems to have a huge impact on Kirk somehow. This comic, I'm not going to say it cleared that up for me, but I feel like this comic supports my original thought a little bit that we had kind of gotten away from, which is that I had felt that the events in this comic are the events that lead to that conversation between Pike and Kirk. Now, of course, I may still be completely wrong. However, jumping ahead, and we've already given people the spoiler alert, jumping ahead to the end of the comic where April actually commandeers the Enterprise and is now going to use the weapons of the Enterprise against the people on this planet. To me, uh, and then we we asked, is uh, Admiral Alex Marcus going to come into play maybe in the fourth comic because we know he's going to be in the movie? You know, the fact that he was April's first officer, but now he's an admiral, uh, Of course, this is not going to end well for April. I think we can agree that uh, it's Star Trek. So in the end, Starfleet is going to regain control of the Enterprise. They're going to stop April. uh, Or or they're at least going to apprehend April after he does use the weapons against the people on the planet. Alex Marcus may be coming in and having to reprimand and possibly court-martial his former captain. And the fact that Kirk allowed the Enterprise to be commandeered could be the reason why the Enterprise is taken away from Kirk and Pike is having this conversation with him. You know, uh, that is a a good guess, I think. Although, I don't know if Kirk can uh, be held responsible for the fact that uh, this Enterprise has the same hidden program in it that April's <laughs> Enterprise did. How would anybody That's ever true. know that? You know, um, but so, but uh, you know, I do think that on a whole, what should have happened is that April should have been in the brig and not, you know, just talking to them in an observation right. lounge. And uh, right. so you're right. Well, that- let me ask you a question here, though. You brought that up. And that's a good point. And when I read this, I actually tweeted. It's the only thing I tweeted about this comic as I was reading it, because we can't uh, talk about them prior to release, although we, we do have right. access to them. This was very, very vague. All I tweeted was, okay, what I just read made absolutely no sense whatsoever, but all right, I'll go with it. So April says... <laughs> I had this control program built into the computer of the previous Enterprise, my Enterprise. It was a fail-safe in the event that an enemy force took control of the ship. 
Even if they wiped out my crew, I could retain control of the central computer and all ship systems. No one could take my ship. And then he says, I gambled that the same failsafe was duplicated in this new ship and that my old command code would still work. Lo and behold, it did. Does that make any sense whatsoever? They build a new starship that gets the name Enterprise. Why Um, would they be duplicating some sort of program that April put into the computer of the previous ship? Does it make any sense at all? It's movie logic is what it is. <laughs> I really, I mean, it, it's uh, it's story plot device logic. Um, right. It, and that's why I said, okay, I'll go with it. But yeah, I thought that they, I personally felt that this story would have worked better for me if they had come up with a little bit more sensible explanation as to how he was able to gain access to the computer. I definitely think so too. I, that's the one part of this I was like, "Huh?" Um, but at the same time, you know, you only have 32 pages to tell this and they need a right, very quick yeah. way for him to be able to take over the ship and it makes sense instead of having But what know, if it were like so. in The Wrath of Khan where every ship has some sort of code yeah. that someone who's a captain knows the way Kirk did? And he yeah. used that. That would have been a much better explanation. Well, and and that would make sense because, you know, as far as Starfleet knew, Robert April was dead. And so they wouldn't right. necessarily have revoked all those command codes that he would have known. Yeah. Uh, so that right. part would have made sense to me as well. Yeah, I think you're right. They could have done yeah. this a few different ways, but I'll give it to them because I'm really enjoying this story so much. Yeah. I'll give it to them as well. But I, I did laugh when I read that, though, the first time through. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. Well, what did you think of uh, Mud? Because I've got some thoughts. Um, well, she's hot. Uh, I think that was definitely both, my first thought. <laughs> we, we both agreed on that. Um, I like how she comes up to Kirk and she says, I'm Mud and I'm single, by the way. Yeah, I love that uh, she also is like, Oh, you're Kirk. Uh, word gets around. Her uh, hero of the Federation, youngest captain in the fleet. You know, like uh, apparently uh, Kirk is something of a celebrity already. Yeah, women all over the galaxy know about Kirk already. Well, uh, if he had time, I don't think he'd be saying no to her. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, what I did find interesting, we've been speculating about why is she a Bajoran? And I think we both like the idea that there is a Bajoran in the story just because, you know, we, 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 we like that they tie in those races that came in later series. So obviously, there's no back history to them in the original series. But of course, they had to exist in the galaxy at the time. So I like seeing that. Of course, we've been wondering why she's a Bajoran and, and whether she's supposed to be Harry Mud. But in this universe, Harry Mud is a woman named Mud. But uh, as they're making their way up to the bridge to commandeer the ship, uh, she tells April that you better make this worth my time, you know, monetarily speaking. And April says, have faith, Mud, like your disreputable father and unlike the Federation. So they seem to be implying that she is Harry Mud's daughter. That was something that definitely caught my eye because it seems that um, Harry Mud, being a disreputable guy, and a bit of a scoundrel, as we knew from the original series, 
he must be better looking in this universe because, <laughs> you know, most Bajoran women that we see are always gorgeous. And so for him to have been able to, you know, fathered a child with a Bajoran woman, he I don't think he could have been the same guy we saw in the original series. And uh, so I just get this feeling that, you know, he's he's not quite the most reputable person. So maybe he did some backdoor yeah. deals with some Bajorans and fell in love with one of them or at least, you know, fathered a child. Well, I don't know about falling in love with one of them, but yeah, he got together with one. And and of course, that fits Mud's character perfectly, I think. I mean, I have no problem seeing the Harry Mud that we're used to as being a guy who, you know, might have a one night stand in a port somewhere. Um or, or just have a fling with a customer, even. You, you never know. And end up having a daughter who we both think must be half Bajoran. And, and you made a really good point as to why you think she's half Bajoran and not full Bajoran. And therefore, Harry Mudd could be her father. Well, yeah, I just noticed that, uh, you know, she's not wearing an earring at all. And so... And her nose ridges don't look to be as pronounced, I don't think, as, uh, you know, someone like Kira's. And uh, so, though, just kind of putting those two things together, I just speculated a little bit when we were talking earlier that maybe she's uh, half Bajoran and he's actually a human still. Uh, So that could be a really interesting storyline as well. Yeah, it's kind of a fun twist. Uh, I think the absence of the earring was a really good observation. Mm-hmm. And and they actually make a point of showing that on the final page where she's on the bridge with her feet propped up and she's got her hair flipped back so you can actually see her ears and you can see that there is no earring there. Well, and uh, I think that this might be something that they'll use her later on in some of the other ongoing comics now that they've established her in the universe she'll probably come back and kirk might get a second chance (laughs) yeah the introduction of her does not seem to be something that they would just throw in here for no reason just to say hey there's my other than the fact that a lot of fans were speculating that maybe the villain could be mud and you know going back like well over a year ago year and a half ago people were speculating that and and now they're saying, oh, yeah, Mud is here. Yeah, Mud's here. But Mud's not the villain. And Mud's not male. And Mud is half Pajoran. But Mud's here. <laughs> well, and it almost <laughs> seems a little bit uh, to me that they were winking at the fans. Uh, and you wanted yeah. Mud? We'll give you Mud. But uh, this time she's going to be hot. And um, you're really going to want more Mud. So yeah, she's um, definitely hotter than <laughs> Harcourt. What did you think uh, about the revelation that what's actually going on on this planet is that the Klingons are using this section of the of this race as a proxy war to weed out half of the population so that they can come in then and plant the flag, and they're doing this because they don't want to be wasting their resources when they don't have to, when it's going to be the Federation that they're really going to want to go after. Yeah, well, I I thought it was a good way to introduce the Klingons into the story, because we know that the Klingons are going to play a role in the movie. And the part about setting up a proxy war on this particular planet so that they can plant the flag here is, um, I mean, it's fine for the story. But what I found more interesting was like you said, the revelation that they see the Federation as the bigger target that they want to go after. 
And so what it really did for me is it made me start thinking about what role the Klingons are going to play in Into Darkness and how they're going to tie in. And it actually, now that I think about it, makes me wonder if this whole John Harrison bit here attacking Earth is going to be tied up in the Klingons and that it is part of a Klingon plot to destabilize Starfleet and the Federation so that they can make a move. What if John Harrison is not Khan? He is John Harrison, but he's an augment. Well, that's something we've talked about on the Ready Room a number of times, that he may be an augment. And and uh, we actually did bring up the Enterprise storyline, which uh, sadly, I think a lot of Star Trek fans aren't even aware of because they didn't watch Enterprise, but the whole revelation of the augments and how that tied in to Klingons and and eugenics. And so, you know, it is a real possibility. Which I think would be a fantastic idea that they would have one of these augments and uh, somehow that this John Harrison character would be very upset at Starfleet for allowing him to be, you know, maybe captured by Klingons or something like that. And so now he's just a Klingon to him. He, he thinks of himself as a Klingon, maybe. And uh, th- I just think that would be a fascinating storyline um, and a great way to it's, use all of that background information we got from Enterprise. It's possible. And I think that's, a, like you said, a fascinating idea. And I would love it if they did something like that that, that did embrace the, the larger Star Trek timeline. Uh, so we'll have to see if that's where they go. But it does speak to the value of these comics that, you know, on the Ready Room, we've been talking about the potential plot line of Star Trek Into Darkness for almost two years. And what you just said right here is something that we've never, ever thought of before. And it's something that you're now thinking of after reading these first three comics. So these comics are very valuable to the setup of of the movie and i think they're using them brilliantly they really are and not only that but uh, it's really adding to the depth of just this abrams universe and i'm finding that i'm more and more interested in it so i'm very interested now as we talked about just a few minutes ago of what's going to be happening in ongoing you know 21 22 after the film because uh, I'm really enjoying this JJ universe and the, what they're doing with these comics is really paying homage to what has come before and mixing it up in a way that I'm really excited for. And it to the, to me, this makes me so much more excited for the film because of the way they're handling all of these characters that we've kind of known from the prime timeline in this new timeline. And it's excellent. I agree. So we'll look forward now. We have a month to go. We'll look forward to Countdown to Darkness number four. Uh, This one ends with the cover to number four with the Klingon. And that's got me quite interested as well. I don't know if we'll get to see the Klingons without their helmets in the comic or if that's something that's going to be reserved for the movie. It wouldn't surprise me if they hold off on that to let that be a revelation in the movie itself. But I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. I did see a promo page and I will find it so that we can put it 
as uh, part of the cover art for this section, but of the brand new Into Darkness 4. And it was fantastic. And the Klingons were in Kronos and they were all around this fire and they all had their helmets on. And I was like, just have one of them take their helmet off, please. I I think the helmet removal is going to be one of the moments of the movie. I I really think they don't want to spoil that. Yeah, I think that'll be fantastic. Now, Matthew, let's take a quick moment before we jump into our feature and welcome aboard our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is a big sponsor of Trek FM in general. Listeners of the Ready Room of Decade of Trek News and Views are already familiar with our sponsor, Squarespace, but we would like to welcome them aboard Literary Treks. Now, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create professional websites, blogs, and portfolios. And I've been using Squarespace personally for five years now, maybe even going on six. It's it's absolutely amazing. I couldn't do my work without it. A Trek FM wouldn't exist without it, honestly, uh, because it makes it so easy for us to build the site and bring all of this content to you so we could focus on talking about Star Trek instead of you know, coding our website all the time. And uh, it's just an amazing, fast and easy platform to use. You know, Chris, one of the things that I really like about Squarespace is that it has over 300 fonts you can choose from when you're setting up your website. And for me, I don't know what it is, but I'm just really a font guy. Um, I will spend, if I'm doing something on Photoshop or on my own website I have, um, if I'm doing that, I will spend hours looking for the right fonts because to me it really sets the tone of the website. And I really appreciate that Squarespace gives you over 300 to choose from. So you can pick that perfect font to really set the tone when people see your header on your uh, Squarespace website, it, it'll just fit exactly what you want. So I'm really pleased uh, that they've done things like that to really uh, make this as customizable as possible for you. Yeah, it is really important be to help you make a site that's uniquely your own. Uh, you know, a lot of people shy away from the idea of template-based sites. Uh, the, myself as a designer, sometimes if I talk to other designers about you know, starting off from a template, oh, a template, I can't do that. It's not custom. But actually, with Squarespace, the templates have hundreds of customization options. And like you said, 300 fonts built in, which is fantastic. And you can even go a step beyond that. If you're if you're like me and you're a professional designer and you're tied into all the Adobe Creative Cloud tools as I am, and you have Typekit, Squarespace also has Typekit integration. So you can enter your Typekit code into your Squarespace site, and then you can go to Typekit and you can create all all of your font sets there like you normally would. And you can use those in addition to the 300 fonts that are built into Squarespace. So really, you know, if you are a typophile, if you love great typography, you will not find any platform that gives you the kind of flexibility to design and and realize your vision like you'll find with Squarespace. Well, and we definitely live in a social media world. And the other thing I think that makes Squarespace so great is that they give you the best mobile experience. Um, You can automatically pull in from Instagram for your site, uh, share pages on Facebook, auto-publish on Twitter, Uh, and add the social media buttons to connect with all the different services you love, whichever those are. I mean, and there's some great ones here, uh, whether it's, you know, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Pinterest, 
uh, you know, any social network that you might want to use to help promote your site, they've got it set up so that you can do that. And, and we know in this world, uh, if you're trying to get out there, that's the best way to do it. And Squarespace makes it so easy. Yeah, definitely. Um, going beyond social media buttons, which of course are great, and the integration is great, on the back end of Squarespace, uh, there there is a social media section where you can connect all this and, and you just tie it right in, you put in your ID. Extremely simple. Another feature that's really cool is the ability to share pages on Facebook. So on your, on your if it's a personal blog uh, or if it's a business, a larger website like Trek FM is, and you have a company page, uh, either way, you can actually take pages from your Squarespace site and just share them directly on Facebook. So to give you an example with Trek FM, if you go to our Facebook page and, you know, we have all these little boxes across the bottom where like if we, you you can uh, tie in your photos there, you can tie in other uh, bits of information that you want to share beneath the timeline header. Uh, if you click on that, there's actually one that says share a Squarespace page and you can choose a page. You can designate a page from your Squarespace site that will be shared on Facebook. Uh, that's a kind of integration that I have not found anywhere else. And it makes self-promotion incredibly simple and effective. Squarespace really just is, I think, Chris, the place to go. Um, you know, like you said, whether you're a professional and trying to, uh, increase your business online through a very good looking website. I mean, Trek FM is a great example of what Squarespace can offer or just looking for a personal blog, a place to share your thoughts, but you actually want it to look um, professional. You want it to look good. You want it to look like you spent hours doing it, but don't necessarily have hours to put into it. Squarespace is the place for you. Definitely so. And the one other feature that they just added recently, which we should mention, is the commerce feature. Because if you're building a business website, there's a good chance that you may want to sell products on there. But even if you're an individual, you may want to sell products. Um, you know, for example, our friend Kate, who does, you know, crochet Starfleet officers and other animals and all, she may want to sell those on her blog. And using the commerce feature, she could be up and running in just a matter of minutes because they tie together with Stripe to allow you to process orders, uh, take credit card payments right from your website. Um, I, I've, I've set up commerce on websites before. It can be quite cumbersome and quite difficult to do. Uh, Squarespace makes it very, very simple with their new commerce feature. And it, it integrates right into the template. You can sell physical uh, products. You can sell digital goods. You can offer coupon codes as well. Uh, it can handle uh, collecting the information for the shipping. It's really a fantastic platform. And and it's really inexpensive. So let's tell everyone about the pricing real quick. If you want this full-blown commerce feature, that's just $24 per month, which is already very inexpensive because you're getting hosting, the best, most stable hosting that you'll find, and you're getting the CMS. Below that, you can get the unlimited package minus the commerce features for just $16 per month, or you can get for $8 a month, the regular package, which probably gives most people everything they want. So we'd like to invite you to go try it out. You can go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code trek3 for March. That's offer code trek3. And you can get 10% off your lifetime purchase at Squarespace. But you don't have to pay up front. You just go sign up. You get a 14-day 
free trial. They don't even ask you for a credit card. You get access to all the tools in Squarespace and uh, you can build out your site. You can even import your site from WordPress or other blogging platforms. You'll see exactly what it looks like. And then after 14 days, if you love it, and we know you will, you just sign up, use offer code TREK3, and you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring all this programming to you at the same time. Tonight, we're proud to have a new Star Trek author, Tony Daniel, with us. Uh, now, Tony might be new to Star Trek books, but he is already an accomplished author of such books as Guardian of Night, Metaplanetary, Super Luminal, and short stories such as A Dry, Quiet War. Um, he's also had multiple stories in the year's best anthologies, and a really cool one of these was nominated for a Hugo Award and also won the Asimov's Reader's Poll Award for Best Story. So, Tony, we are really excited to have you tonight to be talking about Devil's Bargain. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Yeah, welcome, Tony. Glad to have you with us. Well, one of the things that's always really interesting to me is just seeing how Star Trek authors uh, came to find Star Trek in the first place uh, and, and what has made them a fan for so long. And then uh, the last part of that is, you know, whether or not they have uh, a favorite series or not. Well, um, I'm probably older than both of you guys combined. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I, uh, well, I, you know, I remember from the depths of my childhood watching the original series when it was on television. Um, so uh, growing up and being a kid in the 70s, I, uh, you know, I came home from school and Star Trek reruns were playing the original series, of course. Yeah, same for me. And that was, uh, you know, and that was my childhood right there. That was, uh, you know, and I saw every episode of the original series over and over again um, until it became part of my subconscious furniture, uh, as it were. <laughs> So, so I had to, and, and as things developed and I became a science fiction writer over time, I came to know the series in, in other ways. I, I, I like the, uh, I like the additional series and I have many friends that have written for them. Uh, my best friend is a, he started out writing Deep Space Nines and he was a, uh, I mean, a script writer for the show. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it's, his name is Michael Taylor. Okay. And yeah, okay. we met at the uh, we met at the Hugo ceremonies when I, we were both up for Hugo. He was up for his show, The Visitor, which is a oh, Deep wow. Space Nine episode. And yeah, one of the all time great episodes. Yeah, that's Mike's show. And uh, he lost, and I lost, and we we hung out at the losers party, and we became really good friends. And <laughs> now he's the godfather <laughs> of my children. So. Oh wow, that's awesome. Wow. So Mike uh, became a staff writer on Voyager as well, and he uh, he's a Battlestar Galactica executive producer, and now he's on this new show, Defiance, as a writer. So, But that's my friend. That's not me. <laughs> that's excellent. Uh, so um, for you, would you say then that uh, TOS is probably your, your favorite series? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when they asked me to do this novel, they asked me to to choose which one I wanted to do. And I said, original series, hands down. 
for you then, you know, being such an original series guy, uh, did you grow up having a favorite character and has that changed over time or stayed the same? Yeah, my favorite character is always Kirk. Uh, I, I liked, uh, I like that sort of can do thing that he's got going that the, the character has going. This is, this is a somewhat Spock centric book, but, uh, I tried to do Kirk the way I remembered him and the way I liked him as a kid so that, the he would come across that way. I didn't really try to psychoanalyze Kirk very much in, in this. I just tried to present him the way that I, you know, had felt him and felt still feel him when I watched the series again. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that came through for me when I was reading it. It, it really felt um, so much like uh, the characters that were portrayed on screen and... I like the way sometimes other authors will get introspective with the characters, but sometimes in the same sense, you seem to kind of lose who you saw on screen. Um, and uh, I really liked the way uh, that you did them. So that was that was a real benefit for me personally. Well, thank you. Um, I you know was deliberately trying to do that. It's been a while since I was a huge Star Trek fan. It's not something I think about all the time, and um, it would be better for me to try to do it as a show uh, in my head rather than to develop all these things that I've been thinking about Star Trek all these years. Um, like some of the writers who are really, really good uh, at that sort of thing do. They they develop it uh, because they've they've got those characters um, banging around their minds and they want to they want to bring out that Kirk they've always imagined. And I just wanted to write the Kirk that I remembered. Yeah, and I think that works. Um, and I think there's a place for both because you know some, yeah, you know some episodes of TOS are very introspective for the characters, uh, and some are more fun. I mean, you know, you're never gonna put um, the uh, city on the edge of forever right next to a piece of the action. Um, you know, they're they're not the same. Um, yeah, exactly, but, exactly. Right. And uh, by the way, The City on the Edge of Forever is not my favorite Star Trek episode, although most writers will say that it is. <laughs> so what is your favorite? Uh, the Amarind one. Uh, the Oh, what's the name of the, the title of the episode? Uh, the one where Kirk meets Mirami and uh, the, the comet is coming in on the planet. And he, it's the American Indian one. Oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's... That was always my favorite and and I was in love with that actress for for years. <laughs> well, there are quite a few TOS actresses that uh you could fall in love with. That's for yes, sure. Yes, we could have an entire podcast about that. Could. That's true. <laughs> we really could. I think taking this view of Kirk as you remember him watching the show as a kid though is is an interesting and a fun approach that isn't necessarily how it is approached by writers or even us discussing it as much yeah. these days. Because like you, I grew up watching TOS reruns in the 70s. But the Kirk that I think of most of the time these days is more of the movie Kirk. And, and I view him more uh, from an adult perspective. So I, I like this taking that Kirk that you remember growing up as the approach here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, the people that do uh, more in, that get more into the psych psyche of the characters. Um, you know, my buddy, Greg Cox, uh, the greatest Star Trek tie in writer of all time, probably, um, 
is somebody who can really do that, who can pull out the characters. And by the way, you might notice that Devil's Bargain, this Star Trek book, is dedicated to Greg. I saw that. Uh, I thought that was great. <laughs> and I never would have gotten this book if it hadn't been for Greg. So he's he's been an, he was my first editor at Tor. Oh, okay. Wow. He bought my first oh, novel. Okay, well, that's great. Well, I'm excited. Uh, we will be talking to him next month about his newest book, Weight of Worlds. So um, that'll be really exciting uh, because, yes, he's written some amazing Star Trek books over the last, uh, you know, 10 years. And so I'm excited to get to talk to him. I love his, his ones that have Gary Severin in them. Uh, yes, yes. Those are fun. One of the things, uh, too, I just was wondering is how did you get into being a writer? You know, what got you into that? Um, Was it always your passion or was it something you kind of fell into? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I thought that when I was a teenager, I thought, well, I'll write and do all these other things. I thought I could be Batman you know, Bruce Wayne and, and be able to do everything. And then, you know, you get in, <laughs> you get in college and you realize you're, you're really only good at a few things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I'm really not going to be that great at certain things. And slowly it just became obvious that you know, what I was good at was writing and it's what I loved. And I was a reader and, uh, and that's really, you know, I, I plunged forward into that and, uh, in graduate school, I went to graduate school uh, and I deliberately dropped out of graduate school because I was afraid if I got a PhD, I'd never write, that I would end up teaching. And uh, I went to Clarion West, which is a writing workshop. And then it became clear that uh, since I loved science fiction, that science fiction was the way to go. So I started writing science fiction stories and started publishing them in my late 20s. Um, how did you move into, you said Greg was influential in, in getting you into writing Star Trek. How did that come about? Um, Greg recommended me to, uh, to Pocket. That's great. I'm definitely uh, glad he did. What was for you then? You said that uh, Pocket gave you the opportunity to write you know, any of the series that you wanted. You said original series. So for you, what was the genesis then of Devil's Bargain? Well, um, I, if I had, you know, over the years I've thought, what would I write if I wrote a Star Trek novel? Because, you know, I know Greg and we talk about his books and, um, and what characters would I, would I use? And, and I thought, you know, I really, I just would need Hortus. I want Hortus. <laughs> you can never have enough Hortus, right? Exactly, yeah. And I know those those Diane Duane books have Hortus as Starfleet officers, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. and and I always thought that was cool as cool as heck. And so um, I wanted to sort of do the origin story of how the Horta became Starfleet material, <laughs> and so it sort of grew from there. Um, Wow, that I love that because that was one of the things that uh, while reading the book, I was thinking, okay, he's taken this really kind of strange alien that looks slightly ridiculous on screen and made them something so interesting. So what uh, and how did you kind of dive into that culture and really create that? Well, if you've read my other stuff, if you read Guardian of Night, for instance, there is a I, I like aliens. I like to do alien point of view. 
And uh, for instance, I have an alien uh, species in my book, Guardian of Night, that communicates by smell, um, by chemicals, uh, just passing chemicals back and forth. And it, you know, I tried to figure out, work out how that would work. And the same way, I wanted to, and, and I knew that the Horda were sort of semi-telepathic, and because they'd talk to Spock and and all that. Right. And so it's like, so how would that? what would that play out as? Would they be a hive mind? Would they be a semi-group mind? Would they sometimes be a hive mind, but actually be individuals? And I tried to just work out the rules of that a little bit. And when I'd gotten it in my mind, what I wanted it to be, the characters started developing themselves, especially Slider Dan, which I have no idea where that name came from, but it it was my first cool name though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he's sort of the the Horda adolescent leader in the book, and uh, it was really fun to do his point of view. Yeah, I found myself really enjoying getting to see, um, you know, something from the point of view of a character who views the universe really differently because they're not a humanoid. Um, And that doesn't happen a lot in Star Trek books. Um, I mean, it does some, but I always find it really interesting because it's... um, it kind of makes you rethink how you're looking at everything. Yeah, and the Horda are really, in, in the original Star Trek, really in all of Star Trek, because, you know, it's the limitations of the show are that they needed to have actors play these parts. It's one of the few characters that really seems like the, the way aliens are going to be if we ever meet them, uh, rather than, because I have a feeling they're not going to be hum- bilaterally symmetric humanoids when we when we finally meet up. Not unless, I guess, the preservers uh, decided that, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have a friend who, uh, a friend of mine, Athena Andreatis, who wrote The Biology of Star Trek, talks about that too, how it's just not likely, as much as she loves Star Trek as well, it's just not likely that the aliens that we meet are going to be the type of aliens that we see on Star Trek. Yeah, well, you have to, I mean, those guys have to hire actors to play those parts, and so to, you know. right, of course. <laughs> there, there, there aren't a lot of horda roaming Not around a lot of uh, Hollywood looking yeah. for jobs, right? Yeah, and that one that they do have is totally in demand all the time. And yeah, it's a hard knock life for a horda out there. So. Yep, <laughs> he's got quite an ego, I hear now too, because <laughs> he can always dictate his own terms. Yeah. They call him the Rock. <laughs> he's the hottest thing in hollywood oh, God. <laughs> well one of the things that i i really enjoyed about the book um is that like many of star trek's greatest episodes it brings up a lot of different issues and you know in this book you touched on uh, racism uh, the problems of genetic engineering the good and the bad and the ugly of it, uh, as well as, uh, you know, totalitarian rule versus democracy. Tell me about weaving all of that in to the story. Well, I started to develop the thing, and uh, my editor, and I wanted it to be that there was, uh, that the colonists, uh, there's two worlds. One of the worlds is the Horda world. They go back to Janus 6. Um and the other is, uh, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler to say that they go to Genesis because we don't know at the beginning that there's hoarders and there's no hoarders on the cover and uh, they kept it out of the, the flap copy. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, 
the uh, I was developing it and thinking, well, why would you need a horda for if you need it? And and so I came up with this idea. Well, they needed the horda to to hollow out an asteroid. Um, and and why would the people not be able to leave? And I started. And it's a Federation colony. Um, they could just leave. And and so I talked to my editor at Pocket, and she said if they have in any way been genetically engineered, they're not going to be a Federation colony because that's against the law. And so that just opened up a, and I was like, ah, this was when we were developing the outline. And I was, so they they were in the Federation and they dropped out because they decided to change themselves a little bit. Um, and, and this, and this then threw me into the whole con, you know, uh, eugenics war, uh, subplot stuff, um, and I um, jumped on that immediately and, and because it's just got drama built into it, even though it's uh, now alternate history, right? The eugenics wars right. have already happened. So, but, uh, and it just seems like, it just seemed like a perfect, uh, it, you know, a writer uh, being presented with story to tell, uh, Immediately, when you got genetically engineered humans who may or may not turn out to be like the the horrors of uh, of the eugenics war, and you could talk about all that ethical stuff and everything, you can have uh, interpersonal drama and everything associated with uh, with racism and classism and all the the stuff. And so it just seemed like a good uh, good thing, and it turned into a big major subplot of the book. Which I really liked because, you know, when you're reading these these stories and, and seeing these kind of implications happen in a story, um, I like that it makes me think about, you know, where we are today. And, and you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I pointed out in the review was that these are the kind of questions that we're going to be dealing with as science and medical technology really advance uh, very quickly these days. These are the things that we're going to have to begin asking ourselves. Yeah, we're dealing with it now. I mean, people are cyborgs now. You know, uh, you could ask yourself questions about Lance Armstrong. Do you really give a damn that he took drugs? I mean, isn't it just as cool that a human? You know, you could everybody poo poos it, but it's uh, you know, it's it's something that people are making judgments on right now, right? With that, uh, for instance, right. Yeah, and, and that's something I hadn't even thought of. They're just even the 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 way that uh, drug technology can can enhance us uh, in those kind of ways. And does it have a a really bad effect or good effect? And what is the morality of all that? Yeah, huge questions. And I I, I love that Star people Trek... selecting their children based on uh, you know karyotype, whatever the uh, genetic analysis. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even just yeah. what the sex of the child is, uh, which happens in many countries too. And so, um, yes, are are perhaps some of the the potential defects that um, that a genetic analysis of a embryo shows. Uh, also, are we missing out on some adaptation that we won't find that won't yeah, happen? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah, are are you missing out on the next Stephen Hawking? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, wouldn't Stephen Hawking's parents, if they had found out what a what a terrible uh, degenerative disease he has, perhaps have thought about aborting him, and what we wouldn't know what 
black holes evaporate. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. It's uh, but it's it's today. It's you know because science fiction is in Star Trek. Even all science fiction is a metaphor for the present. We don't know what the future is going to be. Right. Exactly. Well, and you know, like all good science fiction, it's given us so many things that we actually use today. I was talking to a friend on Skype, and I was like thinking, "Oh my goodness, this really is Star Trek, except it's cooler because." I'm not tied to a monitor on a wall. I'm carrying it around on my iPad, talking to somebody face-to-face, and they're hundreds of miles away. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, writing this thing is kind of funny because I felt like I was I was sort of writing a retro uh, <laughs> stuff. You know, I felt like I was in a, in, a, in a retro world in many ways with the computer and everything. Right. Well, you mentioned, too... Uh, in one of the scenes, how you know Chekhov pulls out his plastic data card, and it just made me chuckle uh, because you know we don't use anything like that. I mean, we have thumb drives that are the size of our finger, you know. Or I had I have uh, Sulu going to do some research, and he goes to one of the rec rooms that has a dedicated uh, connection to the library. Right. <laughs> wow, they're really backward up there. <laughs> Man, that 23rd century technology needs to get on it. Yeah. But don't you like how in TOS they, they do carry around those little plastic data cards, right? they, they got to have those on the, on hand at all times. Well, I think one of those is probably your um, license and the other one's your registration. And, you know, so that's really what those <laughs> so are. You need a data card wallet. Exactly. So <laughs> Federation starship in the 23rd century, right? Well, they were very colorful. <laughs> that's so true that's how you tell them apart yeah <laughs> well uh tony one of the things you talked about too is that uh, you know you have spock on the the cover kirk is your favorite but you know spock gets a lot of um just kind of development in this book uh and and so does kirk tell me about just uh thinking through their arcs and, and what you were hoping kind of accomplish with each of the different characters well, the one thing i wanted to do was uh give kirk uh a classic kirk relationship um, which I really tried to do. I wanted to have a Kirk sex scene <laughs> because I, of course, uh, the the first uh, the first sex scene that I ever remember as a kid realizing was a sex scene is when um, the episode, uh, the TOS episode. Uh, you know, I know all the titles. I just can't think of them at that, this particular moment uh, with, with the speeded up fast people. Um, yeah, that and. I always get it and the Voyager episode title mixed up, but um, wink of an eye. Yes, wink of an eye. Um, and yeah. he's waking up, uh, he's getting out of his bed, and he's putting his boots on after commercial, after we come back from commercial. And and I, it was the first time in my childhood I was like, he just slept with her. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it, the the moment came to me and I was I realized that you know this is, there's an adult theme going on here that was that was uh, you could read between the lines and see it. So I wanted to have that moment where Kirk has put his boots back on in the book. Um and uh, it was Spock, it was it was I guess um sometimes in the original series Spock says a lot of uh, techno babble, and I wanted it to be real techno babble in this book. And so I did a heck of a lot of research on what would happen if a comet or an asteroid hits a planet. And uh, I, I, you know, I figured out 
I didn't figure it out. I did the research and found out what the, the consequences might be or what scientists think the consequences. And Spock just lays it all out for the colonists. And he's very frustrated when they say, well, yeah, but we're going to go ahead and because they're acting completely illogically until he finds out that they, they do have a reason. And so there's a chance for Spock to have that moment where he really, really, really wants to feel an emotion, which is frustration and anger at these idiots, you know, and he, and yet he can't uh, and preserve his Vulcanness. And so that's sort of a conflict with him. And then he gets to be buddies, he, you know, the Horta choose him as their new all mother, um, yes. in a, in a, which is, uh, you know, this is a total spoiler for the book. We should probably not talk too much about it, but that's part of the devil's bargain. That's the devil's bargain. Yeah. And I liked that because, um, you did weave in a way to give us um, some different sides of Spock by giving him this new position with the Horda um, and kind of deal with some things that we never, ever see Spock deal with. Um, Fatherhood. Yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and, you know, you should write what you know. And believe me, at this moment with a six-year-old and a nine-year-old uh, being a dad and not being their best buddy anymore, you know, <laughs> that's the that's what Spock had to do with the Horta because they're adolescent Horta in the book in Devil's Bargain. Yeah, and I thought it worked really well um, it, because I liked getting to again see you know you, a different side of the characters and uh, you know Spock as a dad uh, to me just kind of left me chuckling um, because uh, it's a good thing that those were his children and not some kind of like human children because it wouldn't have worked out as well I don't think. Yes, they're all very logical. Yes. Um, one of the things, too, that I, I really enjoyed about the book is, you know, a lot of times in TOS episodes, um, they they definitely struggle with trying to give all the different characters actually something to do. Um, but in this book, most of the main characters actually have a, a real moment to shine, and I, I really like that. So... How hard was that for you when writing the book? And, and was that something you wanted to do on purpose? And how do you balance all those characters when you're writing to try and give them their own moment? Oh, sure. Well, that, that was, um, I think that that's part of being a novel. That's why they pay you to write novels instead of you paying for the chance, you know, it's because you are good at that sort of thing when you're a writer. Um, and if you're not good at it, you learn how to be good at it. Um, if you're not particularly good at plotting, which I never was when I started, but over time, uh, it's one of the skills you have to develop. You know, and there's there's a lot of ways to do it. But I, you know, I just as I I, I wrote from an outline and I developed that outline and I thought about what each of the characters would do and how they would uh, when their their side stories would interact with the main story and things like that. But it, it all comes from your imagination, but you got to keep, there's no way to keep all that stuff in your head. You need an outline when you're writing a novel um, like this. So I outlined. Definitely. Um, well, and I thought that was great too, because, you know, like if this had been an, if this has actually been an episode, uh, you know, Kirk and Spock and Bones probably would have really done most of the action. And, you know, you might've had Scotty on the side. Um, but I really liked that, uh, you know, Chekhov and Sulu are seen being friends and, and 
hanging out together and figuring these things out together that they actually all feel like they have a purpose for being on this ship other than just like well we need a helmsman and a you know a weapons guy and navigator. well I, you know i had a lot more words to fill <laughs> than, than a screenplay is a, you know an hour long and is it's right. most five to nine thousand words long and this is this is uh over over eighty thousand so there's a lot more chance to develop these things as well yeah. and and you know in my process of this was um the first thing I did was uh, was watch the original series back through again, and then I watched it again after I'd come up with the outline, and then I watched it a third time all the way through all of them uh, with my wife, who grew up in Germany and hadn't seen them all or even most of them, So, um, which was a fun experience because I could talk about the episodes with somebody who hadn't seen them before, which is hard to find <laughs> in my circle of friends. So. Uh, and um, and I started thinking about the relationships between the minor characters in some of the episodes where they develop and how they they are friends and and I and I know how television shows are developed now and I know that they all these guys have backstories um, and so I started thinking about well let's uh, let's I think Sulu and Chekhov they hang out together all the time they obviously like each other there's uh, there's a friendship and chemistry there so uh, let's ha give them a story together and you know and i love mr scott he's always a great character yeah i really liked his uh, his special vehicle that he gets to drive around in and how much he's a speed demon yeah yeah <laughs> i think scotty would drive a really cool car if he were around today yes exactly <laughs> One of the, the things that I really um, enjoyed about the book, we talked a little bit about, uh, but I just kind of wanted to know some more. You said you, you got a chance to go through and, and watch the series through at least three times and then uh, along with your wife who'd never really seen it. But the the book has this great thing that it feels like um, the dialogue and the characters and the story plot and everything come from like kind of an unseen season four Oh, that is high praise. That's exactly what I was shooting for. Good, good, because I, I just, I felt that. So for you, was it just immersing yourself in TOS for a while to get that feel? Yeah, and uh, you did, one of the things you didn't mention in your rundown of stuff that I've done is I've written uh, I've written movies. Um, I have a screenwriting uh, sort of pseudo career. Uh, I've written a couple of those. You ever seen those monster movies on Sci-Fi on Saturday Night? Yes, yes. Yeah, I wrote a couple of those. Okay. <laughs> Which is perhaps sad, but I've also I've pitched out in Hollywood a lot and uh, talked and and written quite a few uh, screenplays that never got produced, and, but a few, a couple of won some awards. And and I taught screenwriting for several years at the University of Texas at Dallas. So I've done a lot of thinking about how to write screenplay-like dialogue, and I was trying to do that with this because it, I wanted to bring the experience of the TV show into a novel and see how close we could get to, to making you feel that way, that you were in an episode. Yeah, and I, I loved that because to me... Um, I love how all the different Star Trek authors write, but I really liked picking up a book and feeling like that I was in an episode and 
that's what it was trying to be. And so I'm glad that you did that because I, to me, as a Star Trek fan, it's a reminder of why I loved this show. I, I loved the characters because it, like you did, it felt like the ones that I remember every time I pop in an episode of TOS or, you know, I turn it on on Netflix. And so to me, it brought back that joy I got when I pop in some of my favorite episodes and there's the humor there and um, which was, I, I think sometimes it's missing in Star Trek literature, but there's a lot of humor in this book. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I was trying to, I mean, what, one of the things that I was trying to do was trying to present those characters un without looking, a lot of times we look back at them with all the accoutrement of 40 years or 50, or 30 years, whatever it is, um, it, through glasses that, uh, you know, that the, the culture has changed and we're looking at. And I was trying to sort of just be a guy in the 60s as I approached the characters and having 60s cultural attitudes toward them. I didn't judge them as a writer. I was trying very hard not to. Um, have any, you know, thoughts about sexism of Kirk or whatever the heck, you know, I just uh, was trying to have fun with it. Yeah, I think that's important for getting that true TOS feel to the story. That doesn't mean that I share their attitudes, but I... Right. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I have a question, Tony, which is unrelated to the book, but it is related to your, uh, your childhood and your immersion in TOS. So like me, you grew up watching TOS reruns. You're very connected to the characters as portrayed by William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and such. Uh, as we're heading into yet another one of these J.J. Abrams movies, I'm just curious how you feel as that fan who grew up with TOS about the portrayal of these characters that, that you've just spent your time writing about here in Devil's Bargain, how they're being portrayed now, just as a fan's point of view. Um, I... I'm incredibly sympathetic to uh, to screen, screenwriters trying and, and how they're trying to trying to make something relevant and do something with the material that they have that isn't a stale repeat and yet uh, is has echoes of uh, of, 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 of the of the great stuff um, and when it's done well. Um, it can reinvigorate everything and start a whole new cycle of, of greatness. And when it's done poorly, it can, uh, can really leave you disappointed horribly. You know, the same can be said of just about any, you know, like the Tolkien movies and, and, and such. Um, I don't have any particular, uh, you know, I generally have really liked all the Star Trek movies. So this, this incarnation for you, you're just kind of, going with it as how it's developed and it will it'll find its audience and if it's a big one it'll be great and if it's some people that like it and some that don't that'll be great i was just curious yeah everyone has their own different you know views and feelings about it yeah i mean the portrayals of the specific characters i don't feel betrayed when a character that another writer writes doesn't turn out to be the way that i imagined it i try to get into why they did it that way and and to see if it's a smart interpretation and i try to go with their with with them and see what they're trying to do sometimes it doesn't lead anywhere but sometimes it it opens up you know new ways of thinking about the stuff yeah definitely one of the things i was wondering uh after reading this is uh is there going to be another uh star trek book by you in the near future at all 
not that I know of. I haven't been asked yet, but I would certainly do it if they asked me. It was a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I have a feeling they'll ask you. Well, if people will buy this one, they will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tell me about um, some of your other works. Uh, I'd love for uh, our listeners to get a chance to hear about some of your other books and uh, definitely wanted to give you a place to talk about those and kind of just let people know what else that you've been up to as a science fiction writer. Uh, sure. I hear the sound of, of a thousand iPods turning off right now. <laughs> We're done with Star Trek. Let's go. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've been writing for a long time, uh, short stories, and I have uh, eight books, including the Star Trek novel. Uh, my latest book is called uh, The Heretic, which is a book I co-wrote with uh, the science fiction writer David Drake. Uh, we are uh, we're trying to revive an old series called the General Series. It's kind of fun. It's a it's about a world that has fallen into technological ruin and is trying to, and our our hero is trying to raise them up out of uh, out of they've fallen into a sort of uh, ancient Egypt kind of uh, stasis, and he's trying to break the stasis and uh, and raise them back up and let them rejoin their galactic civilization again. So that was fun to do. Uh, the one before that is Guardian of Night, which is straight science fiction. It's sort of uh, the hunt for Red October in space. Yeah, I was reading about that one. Yeah, an alien commander. Uh, well, Earth has been devastated by an attack and uh, by an alien empire, the smelly guys that I was telling you about. And uh, an alien commander that is part of that empire, it's... it's uh, rebels against them and he steals a super weapon on a spaceship and attempts to defect to earth and our heroes are are him and a couple of guys from earth who are a starship captain and his sort of mccoy like helper who is um who's an expert at interpreting this alien smell language and so can talk to them and they, they have to meet this guy and try to communicate and get the super weapon so that they can hold off the final alien invasion of Earth. Uh, and that's Guardian of Night, which I think is a fun little thriller. I really enjoyed writing it. Oh, that's excellent. Beyond that, I'm at the moment working on... Uh, I just sold a fantasy trilogy uh, to, to Bane, which, where I'm also the editor, but I sold it to my publisher. Um, not to my, not to myself. <laughs> um, so, uh, which is really cool. I, um, I ever since I was a kid, I've had this idea of um, America or, or North America if the Vikings had uh, had settled and stayed and had stayed for two or three thousand years, and the and all of North America was bisected by little kingdoms and duchies and such. Uh, you know, a sort of Game of Thrones situation with Vikings in America and American Indians thrown in there and, and you know, maybe some elves. I enjoy those kinds of stories, those, you know, what-if alternate history stories. Yeah, so it's a, it's a kind of alternate history, but it's really going to be, it's really just going to be high fantasy because I love Tolkien. Mm. Um, I taught Tolkien for a while at, uh, at, at when I was teaching as well. And so... Mm. I'm a huge fan as well, so I will have to check that out when they come out. When uh, will those be released, Tony? 
Uh, it well, I'm writing it, so it'll probably be summer of uh, 2014 when the first one okay. comes out. Excellent. Well, this has definitely has nothing to do with Star Trek, but it's definitely in this vein. Uh, being a fan of Tolkien, what have you thought of Peter Jackson's movies and even The Hobbit and where he's taken that? Well, I'm a big Peter Jackson. I was a big Peter Jackson fan before uh, he did any of that. Uh, I, I really liked his old his his work before, so I was really right. happy when I heard he was going to do them, and I think he did a great job. He wrote a he he made a, an amazing pseudo documentary joke kind of movie called Forgotten Silver that people just need to see. It's the funniest thing. It's it's probably the funniest movie I've other than like Raising Arizona that I've ever seen. It's great. Um, and it's little known. So there's a plug for Forgotten Silver. But um, I, I really liked it. You know, he, he within the what he had to work with, he, he had, right. you know, those that amount of hours to tell uh, the story of probably one of the great works of literature of the 20th century. And I think he did a, a heck of a lot better job than a lot of people would have done. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I agree. And you can definitely tell, you know, for all the people that, you know, might not love all the decisions he's made in it, you can tell that it's made with loving care. Uh, and so I'm much more forgiving when when people really care about what they're doing. And uh, I, I think he, he did the best he could to honor Tolkien and what what Tolkien wrote and uh you know I, I love the movies as well every time I'm glad to go back to Middle Earth so yeah I agree um maybe I didn't like Galadriel as much as I liked her in the book <laughs> I just didn't think she was I don't know I, that was another you know much like uh much like um mirror me from that episode of TOS um uh, Galadriel right. from Tolkien is is it like formed my idea of, of of what I liked in women when I was a teenager. So it, nothing could have measured up to my mental idea of Galadriel. I guess that otherwise great stuff. Yeah, so. Well, um, Tony, one of the fun things that we always have the authors do, uh, especially the first time they're on, is just talk about the things that they enjoy reading. Um, and so I was just wondering. Uh, you know, you talked about loving Tolkien. What are the things that, uh, when you get a chance to just pick up whatever you want, that you really enjoy reading? Um, well, uh, I have spent the last year or so, including while I was writing Devil's Bargain, rereading all of Faulkner, William Faulkner, who's a big influence on me as well. I love Faulkner. So, uh, you know, I would Light in August, any day, somebody ought to, to pick that up and read it if they haven't already. And, you know, the, the books that formed me as a as a young man were uh, Faulkner and, um, like, Walker Percy's The Movie Goer and mm-hmm. uh, Ernest Hemingway's uh, The Sun Also Rises. And my favorite book of all time is, is Moby Dick, which I think is the greatest novel ever written. But, uh, you know, lately what I've been, I, I listen to audiobooks a whole lot, and I listen to nonfiction. I just finished the new C.S. Lewis biography, which was really good. Oh, by Alistair McGrath. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I need to pick that up, um, because I, last year I read The Narnian by Alan Jacob and loved it. And so 
I'm very excited to pick up this new one. Yeah, it's um, it, and if you get it from Audible and listen to it as an audio book, they they've attached a couple of C.S. Lewis's wartime uh, faith broadcasts at the end of it, which I had never heard before, and I thought it was just great. Oh man, that's fantastic! I might have to do that. I'm not a, usually an audiobook person, but that might be worth it. Yeah, oh, it is. I I love audiobooks myself. I'm same as Tony here. I, I find I well I run and um, I listen to audiobooks while I'm running and um, I just find that over the years I can read a heck of a lot more if I'm reading a book and listening to an audiobook at the same time. Right, man. That's yeah, exactly. I might have to pick that up then. Excellent. Well, thank you because I love to read as well and and uh, I don't get to do it as much as I'd want with everything going on in life. And, but, uh, man, I'm going to have to start picking up audiobooks then. They're really useful on commutes. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's so true. Well, the last thing I'd, I'd love to do is, is, uh, for you to be able to tell the listeners, uh, where you can, uh, be found and where they can follow you and, uh, catch up on the things that are coming out with you, especially like your new series that you're working on now. And, uh, sure. Well, uh, generally, I'm just on Facebook at my Tony Daniel Fiction Writer uh, fan page, whatever you call it. The reader page is what I call it. Um, I am not. There's another Tony Daniel, you know, who is the um, famous yes cartoon artist, and that's not me. So um, I'm the science fiction writer who sometimes writes Star Trek novels. So, uh, <laughs> mine is Tony Daniel Fiction Writer. That's how you can find me there. And you can go to TonyDaniel.com and it'll take you right to the Facebook page, too. Excellent. That's generally where you can find me. And and uh, everything that has to do with Bain Books, um, I have something to do with these days. I, I'm an editor there. Uh, that's my day job, and I'm there constantly working with all those David Weber books and the Larry Correa books and, and such. That's fantastic. And where would, uh, is that just uh, Bain.com? Or? Yeah, Bain.com. Okay. Uh, and, and we're starting the podcast very soon now, and I'm going, I'm the host of the podcast. So Excellent. You can listen to my horrible voice there as, long, as much as you would like. <laughs> well, we'll definitely um, put the those links in the, the uh, show notes for uh, the listeners. So, Tony, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on with us and just talking about Devil's Bargain. And I do hope everyone will go out and get a copy and read it because I really did enjoy it, um, which they'll know by my review that uh, is out. And as well, uh, hope that you will come back and uh, write another Star Trek book. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, it was really great to talk to you, Matt and Chris. Yeah, thanks so much, Tony. Appreciate your time. Have a good night. Well, Matthew, that was really fun to talk to Tony about his new book. And I love the fact that there's a Horda in there. And, you know, it made me think that in the upcoming movie, perhaps Starfleet should have had a Horda diving into a volcano instead of Spock. Yeah, they really should have rethought that uh, whole issue. It seems like uh, if you're going to have volcanic issues, anything to do with rock, Horda is really the alien species to go with they're they're going to be my choice from now on in fact i'm going to see if i can get a pet horda at the store um and so i'll probably try and report on that next week all right you're gonna need some special (laughs) mats for your floors i believe if you're gonna be bringing home a horda even an adolescent one yeah um 
that's probably the case, but I feel like it's just going to be worth it. You know, uh, Tony talked about his character Slider Dan just seems like it'd be so much fun to have one around the house. It really would be. (laughs) Just don't (laughs) let it play with your dog or your cat because, you know, it could be a little bit of singed hair going on. Well, that's true, but I'm thinking it's going to be really good at uh, helping me with my foundation issues with the house. So it really could be. All right. Well, let's tell everyone where they can find us if they want to share their thoughts on Devil's Bargain, on uh, our talk with Tony, or anything else we talked about in news today. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to us. You can also go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for the show. There's also a section for books and comics. So, you know, if you're reading Devil's Bargain and you want to go and start a discussion and talk to other listeners about the book, that's a great place to do that. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter under username trekfm. Matthew, what if people want to find you personally? Yes, please do. Um, I'm on Trek FM with the book reviews, of course, uh, Tony's being my latest and then you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. And then, of course, the last place is on the orb, talking Deep Space Nine with you, Chris. Uh, Chris, if we want to find you, where would that be? Well, of course, as you just said, on the orb with you, where we do have a great time going very in-depth into Deep Space Nine. So if you are a Niner, please do check us out over there on the orb. You can also find me elsewhere on the network every week doing The Ready Room, where I'm joined sometimes by you, Matthew, sometimes by Char, uh, various other hosts from around the Trek FM network as we talk about all the series from TOS all the way through to Enterprise, back again, sometimes movie, sometimes special topics, a mix of humor and serious discussion uh, and a lot of news. So check us out there on the ready room and you can find me on twitter under username c brian jones that's brian with a y and you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username so uh, give me a follow and give me a shout we also want to encourage you to support our sponsor squarespace you can go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code trek3 to get 10 percent off your lifetime purchase with squarespace Squarespace has everything you need to create an exceptional website or personal blog. Fantastic system. I promise you, you'll love it. Go check them out. It helps us bring this programming to you and you'll be supporting our sponsor at the same time at squarespace.com trek and use offer code trek3. Well, thanks for joining us. Until next time, we say live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.